Welcome to Northgate Bible Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast, where you can listen to our latest sermons, filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're outdoors, in the car, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Uh, just uh, want to say, first of all, as to the, um, the study you guys are, ha- have commenced since back in November, you've been going at this a while, on the book of Hebrews, uh, highly commend it. It's uh, it's a tremendous book, uh, very insightful. It, it magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ, shows his superiority as you've already gone through over the angels. And uh, as uh, Isaac brought out around Christmas time over uh, Moses, and you're gonna get into more of the sections about over the Levitical priesthood as you continue on. We're having a little bit of a pause in that section in the sense that we're going to take a moment, as the writer to the Hebrews often did, and give a warning, actually, because we're doing two sections today, Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 6. Uh, there's two warnings here involved, and uh, so we're going to take a little look at those um, and what the, what the implications of those warnings are. So let's start by reading our passage in Hebrews 3, the, the first four verses, 7 through 11. And if if uh, you want to look at it in the Old Testament, it's pretty much a direct quote from Psalm 95, verses, same verses, 7 to 11. In fact, I'm going to read out of Psalms. If you want to look at Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, you'll see this is in the NKJV. Uh, you'll see that there's very little difference between the two. So in Psalm 95, starting with the middle of verse 7, it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They proved me, though they saw my works. For 40 years I was grieved with this generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, there's a lot in there, isn't there? I'm sure... um, you all are, are familiar with this passage, um, but what it's referring to here, uh, I'm going to let you think about it for a minute, is, uh, is some historical narratives. That's what the psalm uh, passage is referring to that's quoted in Hebrews. So there's actually probably at least two, perhaps three events that the writer to the Hebrews had in mind here when he's talking about this time of rebellion in the wilderness. And uh, so we want to go back and take a quick look at those. One of the first ones we find in Exodus chapter 17, chronologically, and this is only three days after they've, the Lord has delivered them from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea, and they're now safe on the other side from the Egyptian army. And then in Roman, in, in, sorry, in Exodus chapter 17, uh, we find this uh, problem that, uh, that they faced at Rephidim. starting with verse 1, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt or test the Lord or try the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you. And there on the rock in Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place, this is important, Masa, which means tempted or tested, and Meribah, which means contention or quarrel or rebellion, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted or tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So, pardon me for getting thirsty when we read about no water. That's better. So what were they really saying? And what do we say today that's similar at times? Um, 
we, are, we don't usually come out with these words, is the Lord really among us or is he here with us? We say things like, where is God in this? Uh, why isn't he aware of, of these struggles that I'm going through? How come he doesn't seem to mind or care of what I'm going through? And, you know, we have that little wall plaque about footprints and so on. And a lot of times I look at those plaques and I say, yeah, but I've gone through times in my life when I didn't see any footprints. I mean, it seemed like they were very barren times. And where was God through this? Was he really there? Was he really providing? Was he protecting? Was he uh, taking care? Of course he was, but I don't necessarily see the footprints. And, and I've gone through those times myself and my own struggles. Perhaps you have too in your life. Uh, but the interesting thing to me about this particular incident that's referred to in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 is that God didn't judge his people because of it. He provided for them. He showed his power uh, by miraculously providing water from a rock, which, of course, none of us could do, even with explosives probably today. But God in his great power provided for his people in this wonderful way. Well, the other incident which is referred to at least in the latter part of, of um, Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, the last three verses or so, has to do with uh, the 40 years in the wilderness. And later on in Numbers 14, when they uh, were told to go and enter this land that God said, I'm going to give to you uh, as an inheritance, and they basically rebelled. And you know the story about Caleb and Joshua and the other spies that went out and from Kadesh Barnea and they, they uh, surveyed the land and they came back with a report about how, in fact, the land was flowing with milk and honey and they brought back some grapes and other things to show how fruitful it was. But 10 of the spies complained and they moaned and groaned and said, we can't possibly overcome these giants that are in the land. And uh, so the people started to grumble and say, well, why did God bring us out here just to kill us in, in the wilderness? Um, and here's what they said in Numbers 14, uh, chapter 2. All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, if only we died in the land of Egypt, or if only we died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us out up to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And then they actually had the gall to start trying to appoint another leader and say, well, Moses, you're not doing the right thing. We want to do this other thing, and you're not listening, so we're going to have it our own way. And then God, of course, intervened after Caleb and Joshua tried to talk some sense into them, and they would have none of it, because uh, the congregation in verse 10 actually did pick up stones to stone them, and that's when the Lord intervened, and the glory of the Lord in verse 10 appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And that word in Hebrew has to do with spurn or cause to contemn me. And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit inherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And of course, Moses, like he had done before, uh, also pled for them basically on behalf of God's good name and, and so on. And the Lord didn't destroy the nation uh, of Israel. And, uh, but he did judge them. Unlike at uh, Meribah and Massa in Rephidim, he did judge them. And he said, okay, because of this, you will not enter into the land. In verse um, 30 of the same chapter, Numbers 14, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in it. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. So he gave them what they asked for. Ultimately, they said, if only we would die in this wilderness instead of try to go and take this land. So the Lord said, okay, as, as your pun you, you yourself have, have chosen your punishment. And so he did uh, punish them by uh, not bringing them into the land. And then one more incident, too, that uh, many relate from Hebrews 3 and uh, Psalm 95 to this uh, rebellion is in Numbers 20, a few chapters further in, in your Bible, when Moses himself was rebellious and he hardened his heart. Uh, 
and and yeah, I think it's fitting because you had just gone through the section about Moses was faithful in his in his house, whereas Christ was a, a, a son over his house. Moses was a servant in his house, but there was one time Moses wasn't faithful, and it cost him his own uh, entry into the promised land. Uh, Moses uh, struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock, and. That's a real illustration to us of this concept we're finding in Hebrews 3 of hardening of hearts. Hardening of hearts come when we don't want to do what God tells us we should do. We decide we want to do it a different way. We want to do it our own way. And that's when we harden our heart. So Moses had to experience also a judgment uh, of not getting into the promised land. So... Uh, the whole idea here is that God wants his children to follow him and his revealed will in order to enter into his rest. And we're going to get into what is this his rest, because that's verse 11 of, of Hebrews chapter 3, which the point of all this is that they lost. Uh, but again, to, to just sort of look at the sequence of things, there was a disregard of God's word. You remember back at the beginning of your study in early November, your first lesson was on uh, God has spoken to us by his son. And in the past, he'd done, spoken through prophets like Moses and others. But in these days, he's spoken to us in his son. So we have heard his voice. Those of us who, who follow his son, who, who have trusted in his son for salvation, we have heard his voice. We have had his word uh, encrypted for us. Many of us have memorized portions of it. We we have uh, studied other sections besides just what the Lord himself has said that he has inspired his people to write. So we have heard his voice. And the admonition is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, by implication, that means I can do that. I can harden my heart, just like those Israelites hardened their hearts. Uh, but the beginning of it is that we hear it. But the next step is we don't believe it. We don't believe it's authoritative. We don't believe who God is. And, and even though the Israelites had watched him provide for them with manna and protection and given them his, his laws, uh, all of these different things, they still didn't want him to be their sovereign God and tell them what to do. And you and I might struggle with that as well at times. I know I, if I'm honest, there's times that I would rather he not be who he is. And I might chafe a bit about that. But his, God wants his children to follow him and his revealed will, which is what his word is, so that we can enter into his rest. But what is this rest? What are we talking about in, in Psalm 95 uh, and in Hebrews 3? What's he talking about? Well, as far as God's rest, uh, there's clearly two different uh, types of, of God's rest. One in our passage here in Hebrews, a little further on in chapter four, and you'll be getting into that in, uh, in a subsequent week. But look, look a little bit further into Hebrews four and verse four, where he says, he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And of course, that's a reference back to the narrative back in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 3, how when God finished his creation, he rested. And that's what we call the Sabbath. He, he rested. That's the Hebrew word for rest in that, in that uh, passage. So that's part of God's rest. He, he obviously entered into that back after he created the world and, and Adam and Eve. But the second part, which we're more concerned about, is his rest from his redemptive work. And, uh, and that's a rest that we see in, in uh, Hebrews, the writer to, this, to, to the Hebrews, which I, I think he was writing to Hebrew Christians, as has been mentioned in some of your other messages. Uh, he, he sort of pursues this thread a little bit, and we'll just trace it quickly. In Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, it starts about his finishing his work and entering into the rest. Hebrews 8.1, now the main point of the things we're saying, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now he's speaking there clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ from the context. There's no question that he's our high priest. Then if we follow it a little further on, uh, we go to Hebrews 9 and verse 11. 
But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then look down a little bit in the same, the same section here in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 to verse uh, 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we see this rest that he has right now, currently, uh, at the right hand, it says, of the majesty, of the throne of the majesty in the heavens in chapter 8, verse 1. He is at rest. He's no longer working to, to deal with a sin issue. It's completed. It's tetelotestai. It was mentioned this morning in the worship meeting. It's done. It's a finished work. And we rejoice in that today, that he is resting in terms of his redemptive work. It's, it's nothing more to be done. But what about his children's rest? Um, we tend to focus more on that part of it. What is my rest? What, what do I get out of this? Well, the children of Israel in the past uh, they were looking toward a rest of, uh, of a different sort. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12 quickly. Uh, you can see a bit of what Moses is telling them here toward the end of his life about what happened to them. Uh, so Deuteronomy chapter 12, we'll begin with uh, verse 8 and read through 11. Say, so you shall not at all do as you are doing here today. I love this. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And that's the thing that we saw happen uh, in Kadesh Barnea. They were all doing what was right in their own eyes. And it wasn't what God said. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, and so forth. So it's a very interesting passage about the rest involving a rest from their enemies, also involving the place where God chooses to place his name, which is Jerusalem. That's where he ended up choosing and where one day the new heavens and the new earth will be a new Jerusalem come down from heaven, because that's the place God chose for his own abiding place in this, in this earth. And that's where their rest truly came, not only from getting the inheritance of the land, but also having rest from uh, their, their struggles and then having the Lord there with them. So that's the past. What about our rest today. We believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a little different story, isn't it? In, in our case, uh, there's a, there's a eschatological uh, sense to it. If we look at Hebrews 4 verse 10, back in our passage here, jump ahead a little bit. It says, for he who has entered his rest, speaking of God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, someone might say that this is talking about salvation and uh, you know, and, and, and entering rest of, of that sort. And there may be some reference to that, but I would take it more in the sense of uh, our works will be over someday, whether the Lord comes back and takes us to himself or whether we uh, die and we go to see him and be with him, those works will be done. There'll be no more works uh, on our part. And there, there'll be a rest in that sense. Um, and, and our rest, I think, I have come to see, and at least to believe personally, has to do more with a future uh, two, two phases, millennial rest and, and, uh, and the, the uh, eternal kingdom rest. I'm just going to read you a little section here from uh, Zane Hodges, one of my former instructors at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, that I really appreciated. He, he was... Uh, uh, the head of the Greek department. So he kind of knew the, uh, the languages pretty well to be the chairman of the Greek department. And that was unusual because he, he refused to get his PhD just because he felt like uh, he didn't want that distinction, that title, even though he was just a brilliant man when it came to language. Uh, but I always, I always uh, uh, really respected him. Uh, I didn't realize at the time, but he was actually uh, involved with an assembly in the Dallas area 
uh, Spanish-speaking one, and uh, and he was very active in that as an elder. And uh, I'm going to read from his book called The Gospel Under Siege. Uh, he's written quite a few books, especially to defend the gospel against what many would call uh, lordship salvation, where you don't just believe in the Lord to be saved, you have to do other things. Um, so at one, the end of his book, he has a chapter called Who Are the Heirs? He says, on the subject of airship, the Apostle Paul has made a vital and instructive comment. His statement found in Romans 8, 16, and 17 is as follows. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. This declaration is often read as if fundamentally only one airship were in view. However, with only a slight alteration of the English punctuation, which is equally permissible in the original Greek, Paul's words may be read thus. And all he's doing here is changing a comma from one place to another. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Under this construction of the text, there are two forms of heirship. One of these is predicated on being children of God. The other is predicated on suffering with Christ. It may be pointed out at once that the thought of two kinds of heirship is extremely natural against the background of Old Testament custom. As is well known in a Jewish family, all the sons shared equally in their father's inheritance, except for the eldest son who received a double portion. That is, he inherited twice as much as the other sons. Against this background, Paul may be understood as saying that all of God's children are heirs simply because they are children, but those who suffer with Christ have a special joint heirship with him. It is of the greatest significance in this connection that later in this chapter, Christ is actually described as, quote, the firstborn among many brethren. The idea is somewhat foreign, perhaps, to, to many of us, the idea of, of there being kind of a separation among believers in these end days of the millennium and, and the eternal uh, rule of Christ. But there are other passages as in 2 Timothy 2.12 that talk about our co-reigning with Christ. And there seem to be conditions involved with this, which may tie it well into 1 Corinthians 3 and the, what we call the judgment seat of Christ or the bema, uh, when he will judge our works. And that will determine the loss or the gain of rewards from our service uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just going to be a negative judgment, it'll be both. There'll be praise for those good things and, of course, uh, loss from those other things. So in the heavenly Jerusalem, a little further here in Hebrews, we see uh, incidences of what we have to look forward to in Hebrews 11, verse 10. For uh, speaking of Abraham, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking forward to that eternal um, rest in that city where the Lord would be uh, reigning. And then chapter 12, verse 22, it says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, and so on. Um, so there we have this idea of of certainly the inheritance of, of the children of God. So the, the concept here is that uh, the rest that some might experience as believers who haven't hardened their heart may involve more of a co-reign with Christ during the millennial period in particular, whereas the rest of, of other believers who, even those who have hardened their heart as believers, uh, they'll still be in heaven, they still have eternal life, but they're going to lose out on some of this important uh, aspect of the kingdom and, uh, and the, the rule of the kingdom. So if you see the, uh, the warnings that we're, we're dealing with in these lights, it does take on a whole different, a different uh, uh, approach. The, the warning about hard-heartedness is continued in verses 12 to 19. It's uh, called in verse 12, uh, 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 evil heart of unbelief. In verse 12, it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So take note from here that, that this section we just read is likely addressed to Christians. He's talking to his brethren here. And throughout the epistle of the Hebrews, he calls them beloved or brethren. And he, he's presuming that these are believers who are hearing what he's saying. 
Now, many will argue that these, these warning sections are not about Christians because Christians can't have these struggles. The struggles don't suggest loss of salvation, but they do suggest possible loss of rewards. And a lot of us don't like that idea. We like to think, well, there's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, everything is paid for. It's taken care of. And we're great. You know, we're good. We can do whatever we want. And, but Paul says, may anoint or may it never be. Should I sin that grace may abound? No, there is still uh, a judgment to face as a believer. And I think that's what these warnings are, are in light of. So here he's talking clearly to, to Christians. He's saying, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Now, when we think about this, um, the word for departing is apostenai in the Greek, which obviously we get our word apostasy from. When we think of apostasy, we usually think about those who, uh, who just were professors only. They just pretended to, to be sheep when they weren't. They were goats, but uh, they just put on the sheepskin and they, they, you know, they went to the church services and they just pretended they went along with the flow. But in this section, it's clearly talking to brethren um, and that there's still a danger of us apostatizing, of falling away from the living God. And just like the Israelites, they fell away from that God. They had heard his word. They knew who he was personally more than, than probably you or I have, other than that we have had this change in our hearts. They saw externally all these wonderful things that he did. So then verse 13 uh, goes into to, uh, a, a, an important way that we can uh, protect ourselves from getting hard-hearted. But first, let me give you a little illustration about the possibility of, of believers uh, apostatizing. Uh, some years ago, several generations ago, there was a hymn writer by the name of Robert Robinson. And uh, he's the one who wrote the words for that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And we sometimes sing number 10 in our hymns of worship and remembrance. And uh, he lost a happy communion with a savior he'd once enjoyed after he'd written that song. And in his declining years, he, he wandered into the byways of sin. As a result, he became deeply troubled in his spirit. Hoping to relieve his mind, he decided to travel. And this is very interesting. In the course of his travels, he became acquainted with a young woman on spiritual, uh, a young woman on spiritual matters. And so she asked him what he thought of a hymn she had just been reading. To his astonishment, he found it to be none other than his own composition. He tried to evade her question, but she continued to press him for a response. Suddenly, he began to weep. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, I am the man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I'd give anything to experience again the joy I knew then. And although greatly surprised, she reassured him that the streams of mercy mentioned in the song still flowed. Mr. Robinson was deeply touched turning his wandering heart to the Lord, he was restored to full fellowship. And there is a case where, you know, this man was a true believer. He, he really, you can tell by reading the words that he wrote, um, be very hard to be somebody who didn't understand what salvation is and grace and mercy that we talked about in the first meeting and write those words. He, he was a child of God and yet he had fallen away. He had apostatized. He had hardened his heart. When we begin to set aside the word of God as truth, then it opens up the way for us to disbelieve and to disobey. And that's the point of all of this. So it says in verse 13, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And this is God's provision to protect us against becoming hard-hearted. That's for us as fellow believers to exhort one another regularly. You know, I mean, the suggestion here is like every day. And honestly, I know I need it. From time to time, I need my brothers and, and, and others to, to come to me and say, hey, you know, uh, how are you doing? Um, I meet fairly regularly with, with a brother who, who does that with me uh, on, a, on, a, on that kind of a basis. And, and we, we ask each other and we, we keep each other accountable. Just encourage you to, to do the same with one another. Exhort. The word there is the word that we get uh, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete from. It's just the verbal form, uh, parakaleo instead of paraclete or parakletos. So 
that's the idea we need to and, and the holy spirit's work what does he do he doesn't just admonish he also comforts he convicts he he guides us in the truth he does all of these wonderful things and we do this one with one another and the best possible thing that that the writer of the Hebrews seems to be suggesting to help us to not harden our hearts because that's our default like the children of Israel is to continually exhort one another obviously as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, not, not to just lambaste one another and, um, and condemn one another, obviously, but to, to exhort one another and appeal to one another uh, in the Lord. Okay, uh, so let's keep moving. I don't want to go on here forever. We could, a lot could be done about this, said about this, but the deceitfulness of sin, uh, we all know what that is, I think. Uh, and, and this is the warning to, today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, we need to exhort one another. So uh, let's bear that in mind, brothers and sisters, in our, in our uh, daily life, that uh, there's times we may need to check with each other. And then verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ, and that's the same word in the Greek, metakoi, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So again, clearly he's speaking of Christians here. He's saying, uh, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, he's not saying, oh, you might just lose that salvation, you partaker of Christ. No, the word partaker there has not just a sharer concept, but it has the idea of having a portion in. And again, I think it's referring to the portion we have in Christ's uh, heirship, that we are co-heirs if we are those who endure, who diligently pursue the faith in the confidence in, uh, of, of the Lord and not give up and not apostatize. So that's, I think the emphasis here is uh, it will be clear as we hang in there that our confidence is going to hang in there till the end, not just uh, the, what we had at the beginning. And then verse 15, um, while it is said, today, if you will harden his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, an emphasis uh, to encourage us to, um, to hang in there, as we should. I'm going to read you another quote here from, uh, from Professor Hodges uh, about this. He says, and this is commenting on this verse, uh, verse 14. He says, no doubt the warnings of Hebrews against abandonment of the faith are sharp and forceful. Anyone who reads the epistle carefully will, will certainly agree with him. But this is no reason to deny that they apply to us. Indeed, this kind of denial would rob them of the impact they were intended to have. When the admonitory sections of the epistle are redirected towards supposed false professors of faith, quote unquote, they are in reality distorted. The author of Hebrews shows not the slightest trace of a belief that his audience might contain unsaved people. Instead, he persistently addresses them as brethren, and he cites a bunch of passages there, who share the heavenly calling and who have an high priest through whom they can approach the throne of grace. The inference that he nevertheless thinks some of his audience to be unregenerate is not founded on true exegesis of the text. No doubt the conclusions reached in this chapter will be stoutly resisted by those who cannot believe that a Christian could abandon his faith. But it must be pointed out that the refusal to admit this possibility remains an obvious begging of the question. The view that a Christian cannot apostatize is at bottom a theological rather than an exegetical conviction. Since it is not supported by the Bible, it ought to be given up. When this is done, many passages can be read in their normal sense and the warnings they contain can be directly faced. Moreover, we can then also bear a note of hope for those whose faith has suffered shipwreck. And that's an important part. Uh, as we take these passages to apply to us, we realize even if our faith fails, it doesn't mean that that is the end of everything. Um, and, and there is still hope that we can, um, can be restored. All right, so the last section here in Hebrews 3, verses 16 to 19, have to, have to do again with the Israelites' example of their wavering faith that resulted in their hardening of their hearts. So let's read 16 to 19. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses, except for maybe Caleb and Joshua? 
Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. I think we all know from verse 16 and from our own experience that just hearing the truth is not a guarantee of obedience. Uh, I could, could quote you a Martin Luther quote, maybe I will anyway, uh, uh, just a short one. He warned, I am much afraid that the universities will prove to be the great gates to hell unless they diligently labor to explain the holy scriptures and to engrave them upon the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution where men are not unceasingly occupied with the word of God must become corrupt. That's how much faith Martin Luther had in, in education alone, uh, especially if it's not tied with the word of God. And of course, we have the testimony of Harvard and all the other Ivy League universities that started out to train uh, clergy for the work of the Lord. Um, uh, Harvard, just as an example, it was established for, quote, Christ and the church. Would you think of that when you thought of Harvard today? Somebody from Harvard, that that's uh, what, what they're going to be focused upon? In his bequest of the first large gift to what is now Harvard University, John Harvard said this, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom is the only foundation to all knowledge and learning, and see that the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to see Christ as Lord and Master. Above Harvard's gates are etched today these words. After God had carried us safe to New England, and we had built our houses, provided necessities for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it in posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present minister shall lie in the dust. That was the uh, intentions of that university. And just because they started out with a scriptural foundation and a desire to honor God obviously hasn't meant that that's how they're going to end. Uh, so this is our, our warning that just hearing truth doesn't guarantee obedience. And verse 17 suggests that disobedience warrants God's righteous anger and judgment, even with a believer. And we don't like to think about God's wrath uh, in our lives. We certainly find out later in Hebrews 12 about his chastening every son whom he loves, uh, even as we parents ought to do today. And I'll just throw this out there for your consideration if this premise is true, that hardening hearts has to do with setting aside what God has revealed to be truth, what of this whole movement today of you should never spank a child? That's, that's a terrible thing. You're going to cause them all kinds of psychological trauma. They won't love you. They, won't, they, won't, they will be damaged for the rest of their life. Are we hardening our hearts if we believe that over what God tells us in his word clearly? Just leave that with you. What about other issues of the day? What about the issue uh, for our young people of, of living together before getting married, which seems to become more and more a, an acceptable concept? If we compare God's word, can we justify this? What about our attitudes toward divorce? We could go on and on and on. What about the role of women in the church? When God has spoken about these things and we in our hearts say, we will do what we think is right in our own eyes or our culture's eyes or our peers' eyes or in science's eyes or anybody else's eyes. Have we hardened our hearts? This is my challenge. It's my challenge to myself. I, we someday will stand before God. You will stand before God. And I think he will know quite clearly to what extent any of us have done this, have hardened our hearts and to what extent we may have lost this reward or have suffered for holding to the truth and have been uh, given this co-heirship with Christ during the millennial period. Okay, um, let's continue on. So disobedience warrants God's righteous anger and judgment. And then in verses 18 and 19, hard-heartedness reflects both disobedience and unbelief. I, I think you probably noticed that when we read verses 18 and 19. 18 talks about those who did not obey, and 19 talks about unbelief. They didn't enter in because of unbelief. The two obviously are connected, aren't they? 
If we no longer believe in the authority of God's word, we no longer believe that God is who he says he is, then it's very evident we're going to disobey. We don't want to hear what he has to say. We want to do what we want to do. And that's what the children of Israel did. And, uh, and let me just say this real quickly. Um, if you compare the Israelites to the church in terms of salvation and redemption and those sort of things, you would have to say the Israelites as a picture of the church, uh, they were saved through uh, their, well, they were, what was their salvation? It was from being delivered from the bondage to Egypt that they were under as slaves. For us, we're delivered from the bondage of sin through the, and, and then with redemption, that work with the Israelites, it was through the Passover uh, picture of a lamb being uh, sacrificed for them and the death angel passing over. And for us, we have our Passover with sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself. And in that sense of the picture, they were God's children. They were believers. They had been given an inheritance or God had wanted them to have that which they didn't get uh, because of their carnality in the wilderness. And if you go back to Numbers 14, time won't allow us to do this, but there's this, uh, a passage that talks about these 10 times, God says, they have not heeded me. They haven't followed me. Like, the, like in chapter three of Hebrews, he says, they, they didn't know my way, or they didn't care to know my way, or they didn't want to follow my way. They were disobedient. And, uh, and so, so that's why they, they lost their inheritance. But uh, so you can see the commonality here, the judgment of the Israelites not entering in, judgment for us in the Bema seed and so forth. So I think there's parallels with the ideas of the inheritance as well. I just leave that with you to think of further and, and consider it. Let's uh, go quickly to Hebrews 6. We're, we've gone quite long here, and I, I know uh, dinner's probably waiting for some. So uh, look at Hebrews chapter 6. This is a passage that I remember many years ago when my uncle Robert Westfall uh, bringing up to him as I was coming across it in my own study and I was just confused and I said what you know what's this all about uncle Robert you know how do I take this it looks like I'm a Christian can lose their salvation this is I, I, this doesn't fit with what I understand the scriptures teaching and uh, and we had a nice little discussion about that and I honestly can't say I remember if, if he would agree with what I'm going to say right now or not. But uh, in any case, uh, I've had a bit of a change over time myself of, of what my perception of this is, is I've always kind of taken it as either a hypothetical case uh, that can't possibly happen, um, sort of pre preferencing the difficult words with, if it were possible for someone to do this who had all these wonderful gifts, uh, then it would be impossible to renew them, so forth. Um, or I would take it as a pretender or uh, someone I knew back in my college days that was a lawyer, a, st a student in law and um, at the time, and he had gotten involved with our campus crusade for, group, for Christ group, and he was all excited about uh, what he'd read in the four spiritual laws, and he wanted to go out on beach evangelism products, uh, uh, products, beach evangelism projects, and one time he came back and he met with some of his old college friends. And the next thing you know, he's like, I never, I never believed any of this stuff. I, I, I don't think Jesus is who you say he is. To my knowledge, he never had a change of opinion. And I always thought of somebody like Tony that, that kind of went through that sort of a thing. And they, you know, they, they weren't true, truly saved. But again, if you, if you look carefully at the passage, he's speaking to them very intimately as those who are earlier in the text are not where they should be spiritually in their growth. They're still like babes when they should be on solid food. Uh, and when you see a child in real life that that is still nursing and they're five years old, you know, you're like, wait a minute, something's not right here, right? And and the same thing was going on here. These people um, should have been growing in their spiritual life, but they were stuck on some basic kinds of things. And then he shifts gears in verse four uh, after saying, "We will continue to." To learn about these things. And then he, he uses this example, it is impossible, verse 4, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come uh, and have fallen away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. 
So what are we to make of this? Um, these enlightened tasters and partakers that fall away, uh, I would say these are hard-hearted Christians uh, because they've had a lapse in their faith. Again, if I can refer to my professor Zane Hodges and his book, uh, The Gospel Under Siege, he says, it is well known in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5, the author describes individuals, quote, who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That such expressions naturally describe real Christians will be obvious to all who have not already decided that the remainder of the passage cannot. It seems almost needless to refute in detail the efforts made to show that unregenerate people are in view here. All such efforts are strained and unconvincing. Perhaps, however, it is worth observing that the attempt to see in the word tasted an inadequate appropriation is clearly without foundation in this epistle. According to the author, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, Hebrews uh, 2.9. No one will maintain that the Savior's taste of death was anything but the most profound experience thereof. The idea of tasting is, in fact, a recognizable biblical figure for genuine appropriation of God's goodness. You can see that in 1 Peter 2.1-3 and Psalm 34.8. To take the word in another sense in Hebrews 6.4 and 5 has no sound exegetical basis whatsoever. Additionally, the Greek word verb for enlightened is used again later in the epistle to describe the reader's conversion experience in chapter 10 verse 32, sometimes translated illuminated, while the term partakers also describes their relationship to their heavenly calling in chapter 3 verse 1. On all grounds, the effort to see unsaved people in this text is extremely unnatural. Uh, and then I'll also just read a very short section here in W.H. Griffith Thomas's book on Hebrews, his commentary. Uh, his daughter, uh, Winifred Gillespie, was uh, an elderly widow at the time I was at Dallas, and uh, on occasion I would help her to get groceries or things like that that was very hard for her to get out and, and get up to her apartment. Um, and uh, she gave me as a, as a gift from uh, graduation this uh, commentary um, on, uh, that her father wrote on uh, the book of Hebrews. And here's what he has to say about this section. He says, then follows one of the most serious warnings found in the epistle, one that has caused a great deal of difference of opinion. It may help us to understand its meaning if we take the general idea first and bear in mind that its primary interpretation must be in strict relation to what was preceded and to the particular circumstances against which the apostle is writing. These Christians are to go forward. Verse 4, 4. It is impossible to restore those who through continued spiritual babyhood fall away. The description of these people must be noticed. They were once for all enlightened. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. They had been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the word of God in the spiritual world. These four statements clearly imply a real and definite spiritual experience. It does not seem possible to interpret these phases, these phrases of illumination only, of light rather than of life. Then comes the question of the fall. If they shall fall away. The thought must be strictly limited to the text and not made general. It is no ordinary or general fall, but a deliberate apostasy, not backsliding, but willful departure. Practically everything turns on the force of the word impossible, which of course must not in any way be weakened. It is absolute and unqualified. Whoever may be referred to here, it is impossible to restore them. This fact alone shows clearly that the passage cannot refer to ordinary backsliding, from which restoration is, of course, possible. All right, so there's a couple different thoughts that uh, others have, have shared on this, on this section. Um, so let's just break it down real quick. We, we fall away, we can fall away from the faith as apostates. We've already seen that um, in uh, chapter three. The warning here is addressed to beloved, if you look at verses nine to 12, um, boy, I'm jumping ahead of myself, sorry. Um, in verse 9, it says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, uh, that he had known of their faith and of, and of other things, that they had not gotten to this place themselves. But he's not ruling out the possibility that they could, and he's warning them against the danger of hardening their hearts. And uh, the, the danger is that we may not experience, these are some of the results of hardening our, fart, our hearts, we're no longer able to experience godly repentance. And, and a little further on, you can read it yourself because the time, Hebrews 12, 12 to 17 talks about Esau and how it was 
he, he was not able to repent. Um, and, and that can be an experience that we get to if we've hardened our hearts enough. Uh, there will be no repentance anymore in our life. There'll be no softness to the convicting work of the Spirit. We're no longer, uh, well, we've become a bad testimony to others. That's clear about open shame uh, that we put the Lord to. And that we become also useless to God. And that's the illustration of the, uh, the thorns versus the good fruit in verses seven and eight it says the, the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God but if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned and again just the illustration there of um, a slash and burn uh, kind of agriculture we saw that in PNG and, and it was certainly true even in the first century Pliny refers to this where they would burn the ground and uh, it would add nitrogen to the soil and it would actually become a more fertile soil and so god does this he disciplines us and and wants to to bring about a um, a more devoted life in our uh, in our own lives so uh, basically in some uh we see the the importance of endurance um for eternal rewards and of awareness of the dangers of hardening our hearts to god's clearly revealed will and as I close, I just want to read the words that uh, uh, Mr. Robinson, Robert Robertson wrote. This was, he lived back in the 1700s, come thou fount. And as you listen to his words, uh, think about what he was saying, because it's all true. Um, he talks about being an heir of God and, and the mercy of God and all those things in the restoration from being prone to wander. So, uh, here it is. Come thou found of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to save my soul from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Teach me, Lord, some rapturous measure. Meet for blood-bought hosts above while I sing the countless treasure of my God's unchanging love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yet thou, Lord, hast deigned to seal it with thy spirit from above. Rescued thus from sin and danger, purchased by the Savior's blood, may I walk on earth a stranger as a son and heir of God. So may we all find hope and comfort in these passages of warning uh, as God's given us uh, the ability through this spirit and with one another to encourage and exhort one another to be overcomers, Revelation refers to it as, and to share in the inheritance of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, just want to give you thanks for, um, for this uh, wonderful letter that was written to give, gives us behind the curtain of uh, your work in heaven and uh, all that our Lord Jesus is in terms of his superiority. And we thank you, Lord, that he's also uh, such a gracious and, and wonderful Savior and a, and a faithful High Priest, who is uh, who is pleading for us and 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 desiring to see us uh, remain obedient children, soft-hearted children, uh, so that we might enter into His rest. And we just would commit this to you now and ask your blessing on our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.